You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to our very special episode of I Fucking Love This Record, which is called I Used to Love This Record. Our guest today, he has been on the show a few times before, and he is willing to come on and talk about an album that at one point he fucking loved, and now not so much. Welcome back to the program, Derek Victor. How you doing, Derek? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. Always fun to talk about music with you. Definitely. And I love doing these special episodes. And we have recorded another special episode, which I'm still waiting for other people to jump on board with. And so we'll hear from you another time about uh, I Love That Run. If anybody is interested in participating in that, talking about a three or four record run from one band. But today we're going to go with a show that I did one other time. Very popular with my listeners. It's in my top 10 most listened to shows. I used to love this record. So Derek, what is the album up for discussion today? We are talking about Floodland by the Sisters of Mercy. Ooh, okay. Now tell me, when did you love this record? This record it's 13 years old it's 1987 i'm starting to branch out more and more and try and find music that isn't defined by my parents taste in music and this is actually the first thing that i bought on vinyl so okay. i had already bought cassettes of fleetwood mac albums <laughs> in fact the first thing i ever bought on cassette with my own money was a Fleetwood Mac album, uh, Tango in the Night. And I had bought some other cassettes and I'd recorded things from other people. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a great trade in cassettes going around the classroom at that time. But it's, it's that thing of trying to find your own sound. And I heard the song Dominion. And to 13-year-old me, this was my sound. This is where I was going to go musically. So I went out and I bought Floodland and I listened to it and I listened to it and I listened to it. And then, you know, discovered that there was one other guy in the class who liked the Sisters of Mercy. And he had an album called First and Last and Always, which was their first album. And I had never heard of. So this was very exciting. And from there, I discovered that there were other bands like Bauhaus, The Mission, which was a spin-off of Sisters of Mercy, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, The Birthday Party. All of these bands came out of connecting with this one guy over Floodland. So Floodland was special to me. It was like my access to this whole genre and multiple genres of music that I had never considered that weren't in the charts, that weren't going to show up on top of the pops, that weren't going to show up on, you know, we didn't have MTV yet in Ireland, but probably wouldn't show up there. I certainly hadn't heard of 120 minutes yet. <laughs> so this was a very exciting album. So I think that gave it a big status for me. And I think that was a big part of why I loved it. Or when I was 13, 14, 15 and started buying black clothes and, you know, really getting into the whole <laughs> image of the thing. I remember it was weird to like the Sisters of Mercy. So that I think also appealed to me because I didn't fit in already because I didn't like hurling and I didn't like Gaelic football and I didn't like soccer. I didn't constantly talk about women 
the way some guys in my class were starting to at the age of 13. So yeah, I don't like the same music as you. Fuck you. <laughs> That's your fucking problem. So it was, it, I think it was, it fed into that as well. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. And uh, obviously things that you, you hear at that age, that a lot of times I try to steer people away from albums that they liked as, as an early teen because that almost seems too easy, but because I know the place that this played kind of as a pivot point for you, that's the reason why I I decided to let this one go because I would prefer people choose albums that they loved when they were 19 or 20 or 25 because then it kind of means something. Not liking something that you liked at 13 anymore makes a lot of sense because it's such a huge, huge difference between, you know, what you're you're doing then. But because this wasn't just kind of a pop record or it wasn't, oh, you know, I love this because it was songs from the big chair and everybody loved that record, you know, so it's not like that. So that's why we went with that. And I think it's interesting just because it is such a pivot point for you and that, but somehow it doesn't really hold up. Now, I also have this record and I remember buying this record now several years later. So normally I don't talk much about the records on this one, but I'm going to tell my story just very quickly because I heard this corrosion at a party. No, sorry, at a club. Uh, so there's a place in Tampa I used to go to called 911. And they played a lot of uh, just like alternative dance kind of stuff. And some of it was heavy, like you may hear Ministry or later on Marilyn Manson or this kind of thing. And also some goth stuff and some regular alternative stuff and anything that had a bit of a bounce to it. And it was a, a place that I practically lived in for a couple of years in Tampa. And this was a song they played. Now, this is pre-internet days. And so... I couldn't just go look up what's that song that says this, right? And so I just, I didn't know who sang it. I didn't know where it was from. It wasn't even like it was something I heard on the radio where I could hope that the DJ would tell me. So it was just playing at a club. I thought it was pretty catchy. Like that same year, I'm at a party during the day. So I remember being up by the pool. I don't remember whose party it was. The song comes on and my cousin who at one point was going to move to Florida, but he was, he lived in Michigan. He's there and he listened to a lot of alternative stuff. And so the song comes on, this corrosion comes on. I'm like, oh, who is this? And he answered me with the most dripping condescension you can imagine <laughs> that this is sisters and mercy you know just like so fucking smug that i didn't drown him in the pool i still consider i should have won some kind of nobel peace prize from that but i took Definitely. it I, I took it on the chin it's like fine now i know who it is and i go to vinyl fever back in tampa i go to vinyl fever find it they don't have it in the used section so i'm, I'm going to buy floodland new and the lady behind the counter, she's like, we have the greatest hits package used if you want it for, you know, seven bucks or something. It's like, and I was at that point, I was just trying to, I was trying to get into albums more instead of just, you know, it's like, I'm going to take a chance on this album. I really wish I would have listened to that woman <laughs> and bought the used copy of the greatest hits package because it's okay. But this corrosion is a great song to hear in a dance club. Not a great song to listen to in your living room, you know, and it just misses all of what makes it fun in a dance club. So that's an album I probably listened to three times before I'm like, I just don't think I like this very much. (laughs) And I would and, and this would have been, let's say, 93 or 94, somewhere in there when I finally heard the whole thing. So I have a burned copy of it because I'm sure I've just burned it and then sold it back to Vinyl Fever. Took, took, took the loss, but that was my quick story with Sisters of Mercy. And I re-listened to it just the other day to prepare for the show. Yeah, it doesn't hold up at all for me. Like there's a couple of things that I, like, I thought Dominion was okay. And again, I, and I even found like this corrosion to not be I'm anywhere near as good as I remember it being without those club speakers. And, I mean, you know. sitting on your own, your own speakers and what is it? Nine and a half minute long Too song. Long. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be long at three minutes 
because it doesn't really have anything to say. But at nine minutes, it's just impossibly long. Yeah. It's funny you should mention that dripping condescension because one of the things I discovered early on was that people who identified as Sisters of Mercy's fans in Ireland tended to have that holier-than-thou, better-than-you condescension if it came to any question you had. For example, there was a Sisters of Mercy song where they sang a section of the song in German. Um, It was on the first album. And I didn't realize it was German. And I asked, (laughs) did they make up the language? And it it was exactly the same thing. It was, how could you not recognize that it's German? I'm like, because I am doing French in school, okay? I've never heard German outside of the Nuremberg rallies, and it doesn't sound like that. A real Sisters of Mercy fan speaks German, Derek. (laughs) Absolutely. And wants to move to Berlin. (laughs) The other one was that I didn't know that um, the band member listed as Dr. Avalanche was a drum machine. Yeah, okay. But the other thing that you said, which I think is very interesting, is 13-year-old me liked Fleetwood Mac, and I still do. 13-year-old me liked R.E.M., and I still do. I got into a lot of stuff around the age of 13, 14, 15 that holds up. And actually, a lot of the bands that Sisters of Mercy was a gateway to hold up for me. And I would still say, I would still stand by those records and say, I still fucking love this. And also on the pop end of things, Eurythmics was a band that I got into then where I still have those albums, still put them on and go, this is fucking amazing. But Floodland to me, it's barely listenable. So before, yeah. before you go with that, that's, that's a good start. So now, because you, you, you mentioned, let's say, 13, 14, 15. So I'm assuming at some point, Floodland just kind of goes on the shelf and you don't pull it back off the shelf, not because of any, let's say, immediate dislike. It's you're listening to other things or you don't always listen to everything. I have CDs that I love that I probably haven't listened to in 15 years just because I, you know, I didn't have access to them for a while or I'm not in the mood for that or I don't even remember what this one is because I have too many CDs, right? So you put this one up on the shelf. Let's just assume somewhere around 15, 16, it goes there and it just doesn't come back down for a little while. So how long approximately do you think does Floodland sit on the shelf for just no reason other than that's where it is and you didn't pull it back down? I can even tell you how old I was when it went on the shelf and didn't get pulled back down with like that kind of certainty. Okay. I was listening to it and it was around my 15th birthday. So this is 1989. Sorry, 1988 is my 15th birthday. So it's a, it's around then. So it's a, probably a, a year, a year and a half after it came out. And I was listening to it and I had been listening to other stuff before that day. It was just a day that I was letting myself be really musical. I didn't have to work. I didn't have school. I was just in a musical mood and I had my record player and I was putting on album after album. And it came on Dominion, Mother Russia, went into flood. And I just remember having this feeling of boredom. And that was rare for me with music. I was waiting for songs to finish. They felt too long. And third song, Lucretia, My Reflection, first notes of 1959 and 
I was just like, maybe it's this side. And I flip it over and this corrosion starts. And I was like, I, I can't. And I, I took it off and I put it in the pile to sell, which is not something I did lightly with anything. Selling something off was something that it, I really had to dislike it, like getting an album and going, oh, I hate this. There was something that I was really just bored by. And I did, I took me years to work out why. I know I ended up not selling it because I was like, you can't sell the Sisters of Mercy. That's not right. And so it went back on the shelf and then gathered dust for years. It never came down. And it didn't, wasn't just that one. It affected the EP, which I don't remember the name of. And it affected their first album. And they just kind of, that they'd lost something. And I realized much later because someone was, you know, it, it's such a common conversation in your early 20s. What do you listen to? What do you listen to? It's still, it's still that conversation. We haven't gone to the point where, so what is it you do has become an opening salvo. It's not, we're not at the point of, you know, internet side of things where you would, you know, that's not there yet where we're talking about memes. So I'm in my early 20s and people are like, what are you into? What did you used to be into? What did you listen to at school? And they came up and someone was surprised because I, I seemed to be quite passionate talking about them, but I'm not into them anymore. So someone was asking and that's, we kind of picked it apart. And it was, I was listening to some amazing musicians that day. I was listening to R.E.M., which is a collection of really, really talented musicians. I was listening to Fleetwood Mac we're talking Lindsay and Stevie and Christine McVie backed up by Fleetwood and Matt, you know, that era. And I was also listening to Nick Cave who, and Leonard Cohen, because I'd gotten back into stealing those records from my dad. <laughs> and so with all of that, and then putting on Floodland, it exposed how hollow it was. And I'm not normally one to criticize the musician because normally I'll just go with, I don't like it, but maybe it's good, maybe it's whatever. But it was flat and kind of mechanical. It was too studied. It was kind of an exercise in creating music of a particular type. And I didn't feel the talent and the passion and the creativity. You go from Nick Cave or Leonard Cohen to Andrew Eldritch, the lyrics are just exposed as a bit high school poetry compared to actual <laughs> verse. The guitar, you can't go from Lindsey Buckingham to that. You can't go from the bass lines of early REM to that and not go, wait, something's missing. And I remember once joking much later that the Sisters of Mercy were to goth what aqua was to pop. That this corrosion was the, the, the goth equivalent of I'm a Barbie girl. And sorry to any <laughs> listeners who now have that song in their head. Wow. <laughs> Shots fired. Wow. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm just saying shots fired. You know, I've I've been on a bit of a Nick Cave kick lately because I just I pulled out because I, I like I, I probably mentioned before I finally brought all of my CDs back from the states and so I have this shelf in my living room that has you know those just in the big 
black wallets. I wanted to listen to a Johnny Cash CD because I was doing a podcast on it. And it's the CD version is different than the vinyl version because I've pulled out the vinyl, but that has two extra tracks on it. And I wasn't in the mood to listen to streaming because I was going to be doing some stuff. And so I wanted to get the CD player running. And so I played the cash. And of course, Cohen and uh, Cave are not that far behind, you know, or in that same in that same area. And so I've thrown on a couple of different Nick Cave CDs just because I was in that mood. And then I listened to Floodlands. I did the exact same thing you did. So maybe not back to back, but the thing that I took away from it, I can see the appeal in a club, as we mentioned at the beginning, when it's got the full booming system and you've had a few drinks and there's a dance floor full of people, but it feels like you said, like chemically engineered specifically for that. And it's got imagery and some of the things, it just, something about that CD kept screaming fascism to me. And it's like just that the sloganeering and the black look, the surface level, that's obviously kind of a silly comparison to make, but Dominion, what do you remember from that song? Him singing Dominion a bunch of times. You know, what do you remember about, you know, this corrosion is the entire hook, even though at first I thought he was saying miss corrosion, but that's just me. So drip with condescension all you want, Victor. (laughs) That was the thing that just came to mind. It's like, it just felt like you said, it was just too too studied, too pre-programmed for drunk 20-year-olds on a dance floor Mm -hmm. of of a certain persuasion. When I was... So university starts, I'm 17 when I start university, turned 18 in my first year, 19. There were two clubs in Dublin, McGonagall's and Fibber McGee's. And both of them had alternative nights or metal nights or goth nights. They had that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Thursday, Friday, Saturday night were at those two clubs. It was metal. It was punk. It was goth. It was alternative music guaranteed. I don't remember, you know, which night was metal or stuff, but that was where we went. Mm-hmm. And that was where we went out. Fibber McGee's had a terrible reputation. Everyone used to call it Stabber McGee's <laughs> because there were so many fights. And I yeah. shouldn't laugh because it's a terrible thing to laugh about. But there you go. And McGonagall's was also, they would have concerts. I saw Dinosaur Jr. at McGonagall's. I saw Spaceman 3 at McGonagall's, I think. Although, given the concert, I'm probably too stoned to remember (laughs) where I was. But I remember that Lucretia, my reflection, would come on at one of those nights. I remember this corrosion would come on. I remember other songs of theirs, like Temple of Love or the Temple of Love remix, would come on. And they worked. In those environments, they worked really, really well. Uh, Lucretia, my reflection, that baseline in a club setting, amazing. Sure. Getting a whole group of people like screaming Miss Corrosion <laughs> at the same time, it works. And when DJ at one of those nights would know how to pair that song with things so that it would flow in, it was great. So when I was sort of 17, 18, 19, I remember taking those records down again and putting them on and quickly turning them off again. And it's exactly the same thing you discovered. They work in that setting. They don't work on your home system. No. And I will always say I used to love this record because there was a time when it got played so much that I think my parents probably knew the lyrics. (laughs) That's how much it was playing. (laughs) And because it was so important, because without it, I never would have connected with this guy. His name was Kieran. And, you know, he liked all that music. 
he played drums. He ended up being in a band that played that type of music. So he was a musician. He had brothers who were musical. They were a musical family. And so they knew music. So they would introduce me to things. And so it remains really important. I never ended up selling it because I'm a sentimental person. (laughs) And therefore it holds its place in the collection just for that reason. But I cannot imagine putting it on. I mean, technically probably skillful because it does exactly what it's supposed to do. But what it's supposed to do is not something I can say that I fucking love. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and bearing your teenage soul for me uh, on this. Uh, I used to love this record. And like I said, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Looking forward to uh, other things that we do in the future. And I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Greetings. My name is John Poorville, here to tell you about Stages, my new album coming out November 27th, 2020, to Bandcamp and all major streaming platforms. 2020 has been a difficult year for me and everybody I know, and I wanted these 13 new songs to reflect all the different shades of anxiety and uncertainty that we felt living through a global pandemic, a period of political turmoil and protest, and a time of economic turmoil and upheaval as well. I recorded these songs all from the messy basement of my own home, and the styles are all over the map. There's straight-ahead rock, piano ballad, folk, country, soul, synth-pop. There's even a pastiche of a 60s novelty song about lovable monsters. The album is broad and diverse and anxious and messy, and I hope that you find something to connect with when you listen to Stages, November 27th, 2020 wherever you get your music from. I'm John Porabill, and you can find me at John Porabill on Twitter or johnporabill.bandcamp.com. Uh, so sitting in the other chair today, we have uh, a returning guest in John Porabil, the host of Playdisc Podcast, who has a new album coming out, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again, Derek. And what album are we talking about today? So we are going to talk about the 2002 soundtrack to the 2002 movie Spider-Man. Okay. So when did you love this record? When it first came out, uh, I was... Brought into it because I was a big fan of comic book heroes and especially Spider-Man. I thought the movie was especially well done. What I liked about this soundtrack was that it was kind of a distillation of where modern rock was at the time. So you've got some punk adjacent, like the band stuff, like with the hives being included and some of the like more generic yeah the lead single from this album was chad kroger from nickelback just doing a solo song uh and uh it just had a lot of familiar names of of people who were big in the modern rock scene new metal and punk and and that kind of stuff and i was following it pretty closely and i was really into a lot of these bands at the time and i kind of felt like oh yeah this is like a compilation of of where music is at and where my head is at musically right now as well and how old were you when this came out? 16, 17 years old. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that seems like a good time to get uh, your your hard rock soundtracks in at that point. So um, was this uh, <laughs> was this an early record for? I mean, were you a music buyer before this? 
is this, you know, one of your first few records that you owned? Was this something that was just uh, as a part of your evolution as a, as that a would give me an excuse, wouldn't it? Oh, go easy. It was my first record. No, it had been, a f- I'd been buying music for a few years at this point. Okay. Uh, it was funny. One of the other records I was thinking about doing for, I used to would have been one of my very first records, <laughs> but well, we're not going there yet. Yeah. I've been buying records for a few years at this point, And I just, boy, I really couldn't tell you what was going through my head when I went to the store and put this on. Like, I, I don't think I bought it on its own. I think it was like in a, in a stack of albums that I bought. Because I tended to go in batches. I know I wasn't thinking, gosh, I just love that Chad Kroger guy so much. Because <laughs> he was kind of, I was sort of reluctant. I was like, yeah, I know it's Nickelback, but listen. <laughs> <laughs> was there a, a specific track that got you to uh, to pick that one up? I think it might have been the one by Alien Ant Farm. They have a song on this record called Bug Bites with a Y, Bug, you know, Bites. I really liked Alien Ant Farm for their first couple of records. Uh, they would have been promoting their first or second one at this point. I'll tell you what, man, uh, they were one of my favorite bands in high school. And I was listening through some old stuff, trying to think about what I would do for I used to love this record and seriously thought about their second album, True Ant, because that was one of my favorites in high school. And I listened to it recently and I was like, nope, still holds up. Like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always Good nice pleasantly surprised there. but this song the one that's on this album kind of sucks <laughs> i remember really liking it at the time because they throw all these puns in there i would swing from anything to not leave you hanging and when i was in high school i was like that's so clever and now i'm like oh my god guys plus uh the kiss of death for me is like when i listen to it now and this might have been a problem with the mastering on the album but that song just has these weird overtones that make it really discordant throughout. And it's hard for me to listen to that. Okay. So now this, you, you pick up you know, basically when it comes out, this is in, I'm assuming, heavy rotation at the time. So um, mm-hmm. basically, how long do you feel like this was an album that you loved? Two, maybe three years max. I certainly couldn't imagine I was listening to it at all after like my freshman year of college. So we're talking maybe three years. Okay. So in three years, it's still on, you know, I'm, I'm assuming maybe not in heavy rotation by year three, but still being played on occasion. Yeah. You go off to college, you uh, maybe this one gets put on the shelf, maybe it doesn't go with you or, or it goes and just kind of gets buried. What made you pull this one back out? I've been doing a lot of nostalgia listening lately. Uh, I don't know what it is, but it just kind of, I don't know about you, but in this age of streaming, do you ever pull up a device that you want to listen to, assuming you're not, you know, sifting through your vinyl? And, and just think, I could listen to anything in the world. Every record, every song that's ever been recorded is on Spotify or YouTube music or whatever you do you're listening on. And here I am with the phone in my hand, like, what the hell do I want to listen to right now? I can't think of anything. <laughs> it, it is tough. Uh, but I always find that Spotify has the weirdest algorithms for me. Like I could look up, you know, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of the Afghan wigs, right? And right. so I'll put the Afghan wigs in. And obviously that's in one of my saved, but, and I'll listen to that. And then I'll look up something like I want to hear uh, the one that always <laughs> sticks out for me. I wanted to hear Boys of Summer for absolutely no reason. The original from Don Henley. And at one sure. point you couldn't find that on YouTube. It was not on YouTube. And I was like, all right, we'll see if it's on Spotify. And then now it's like for like six months, I got other artists similar to Don Henley. Like, I don't like Don Henley. <laughs> I wanted to hear <laughs> one song and I could look up, you know, the Afghan wigs yeah. and I could look up a ton of other stuff. Do I get that? No, it's all about Don Henley for some reason. And That's so it's easier little... to recommend from, I guess. I don't know. So I was going to say, you know, I was thinking back because I get that paralysis all the time when I'll pull up a music app and be like, 
I could listen to anything in the world. Why can't I think about what to listen to? Yeah. I'll harken my brain back to when CDs used to cost 18 bucks a pop. And I had to be really uh, judicious about what I was actually spending my money on. And so I heard a lot of singles from bands that I never felt like spending the money on a whole album for. And I know I have a million of these tucked away in my head and just decided to be like, Hey, I have, I have these things now. Why don't I go back and listen to all this stuff that I was curious about before? It's been sort of a nostalgia slash exploration kick. And that was right around when you approached me to do, I used to love this record. And I thought back and really had to think about what I was listening to in high school, which was a lot of like new metal and not actual metal, but the, the stuff that was called new metal, which really wasn't metal. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're stained and you're, uh, your Alienate Farm and stuff like that. Basically, the bands that are on the Spider-Man soundtrack record. <laughs> I don't know. This one jumped jumped to mind, and as soon as uh, as soon as it popped into my head, I was, I didn't even listen to it again before I said, "We're doing this album." <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so I'm assuming at some point before that you have actually had the opportunity to listen to it. And, you know, you mentioned some of the, the mastering was a, a little bit off maybe on the, that one specific track. Um, yeah. Did you get my text from the other day where I said, Al, my ears? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was the peak of the loudness wars. So I don't know if this was individual engineers on each of these songs, independently making bad decisions, or if this was like the musical director of the album because that's these soundtracks do normally have like a guiding hand involved, mm-hmm. yeah. but everything is just compressed to the point of aural painfulness <laughs> in pursuit of a, of a loud sound. Yeah. And so some of these songs, even the ones that are, that are okay, I'd have to say that actually surprised me. I was listening to this album and I would say none of these are outright bad songs. Maybe the one by maybe the, um, Somebody else. Yeah. The song is called somebody else. And on my listing of the album from Google, the artist isn't even credited, but, but it was uh, blue or I guess bleh, which is the sound (laughs) you make when you hear it. Uh, (laughs) That song I think is probably the worst this album gets. The rest of them are just, I mean, they bottom out at okay, but the production takes them down another notch because not even the production, but the mastering where even the quiet parts have to be super loud. So the loud parts are just, it introduces a form of distortion when you master an album like that. It's too much. It's just, I don't know, man. I, it's hard to describe without just playing it. And if you play it, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So now this is one, because I, I remember when I was younger, because I'm, I'm probably about 10 years, 10 years older than you. Mm-hmm. And I remember when um, when soundtracks were a lot more varied, it felt like. And then sometime, I want to say in the early 90s, I think on the strength of like the singles soundtrack, that uh-huh. soundtracks ended up becoming a lot more uh, uniform. Like, so it's like, okay, here's your grunge soundtrack or here's your new metal soundtrack, or here's your, you know, pop R and B soundtrack. And I like a few other film soundtracks from around the same time. Like high fidelity has an awesome soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vanilla sky by, by, uh, you know, the uh, Russell Crowe film that, not Russell Crowe, the uh, Cameron Crowe film. <laughs> One of the Crows. Vanilla Sky. <laughs> Russell Crowe in Vanilla Sky. <laughs> no. Soundtracked uh, by the Black Crows. <laughs> nice. Vanilla Sky, the uh, Cameron Crowe film, has a really terrific soundtrack that, that crosses a lot of different genres. Uh, I like the soundtracks to a lot of Wes Anderson movies from around this time as well. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore both have banging soundtracks. But definitely for Spider-Man, they were going for a particular note. 
Yeah, this is a, a record that's been on the shelf for you for, uh, you know, over 10 years at this point, like you said. So from, let's say, 2002, yeah. 2005, 15, you know, yeah. 15 years without without listening to it. Now, that initial re-listen, did you have that flood of nostalgia or did you have that, oh, yeah. Jesus, God, what was I listening to? You know, <laughs> uh, it- a little of both because this is a soundtrack album and it's got multiple artists. It was a little of both. OK, right. Because for some of them, I hate to admit it, but that Chad Kroger song is a banger. <laughs> I mean, it's fine is what it is. It's not like i'm not gonna add it to my rotation now but it's like for what it was for what it was trying to do is fine there's absolutely nothing wrong with that song it's got mediocre lyrics that say pretty much nothing and one really interesting chord change that pretty much saves the song and just a mirror polish of production values and that's enough that's all it had that's all it needed to have and that's all it has and it's fine was there anything Um, else on the record that uh, held up for you yeah there's a solo song by Corey taylor called bother I remember before I picked this album up again, I remember that that was one of my favorite songs on this album, but I wouldn't have been able to like tell you why or recall any of the lyrics or anything. I just remember the Corey Taylor song being one of the ones that I liked a lot. That one I still did like. It's got that nice guitar lick. It's mostly acoustic. So it's in the vein of that like new metal gone acoustic where mm. it's just kind of, it's not quite emo, but it's, it's hitting a similar from a similar angle. It's got, a pretty catchy chorus back to it's acoustic guitar and uh, and, a, and a string quartet, I believe those emo lyrics. Uh, that one still holds up to me. Again, it's not poetry. It's not mind blowing like it used to be. I think it still holds up pretty well. There's a song from The Hives on this album, which I'm pretty sure was a single before this album came out. I think it's one of the ones that they didn't release it as a single from Spider-Man, but it was already a hit before then which is hate to say i told you so Mm -hmm. the funny thing about the hives is i didn't like them when they were new but revisiting i'm like boy did i call that one wrong this is a pretty good band (laughs) yeah they were they were fun i like them uh and hate to say i told you so is a is a straight up jam i didn't give it the credit that it deserved when i was a teenager and that was my fault yeah that's a good song the strokes uh they have a they have a pretty pretty straight up it's a strokes song what do you Mm -hmm. need what else do you need from that and then everything else here is just kind of okay you know i mean they they stuck the theme from the old spider-man cartoon on here and then the album ends with Aerosmith covering the theme from the old Spider-Man cartoon. Okay, whatever. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is most of the songs on this album are just not memorable. They're just not, they're nothing, right? And that's, some of them rise to the level of being pretty good, but most of them just wallow in. This is fine. I'm not offended. Um, You know, this is not aesthetically horrible, but I'm not going to remember it. I, I went 10 years without thinking about most of these songs and I'll go another 10 without thinking of them again. Other than the track by Blue, which you've already called out, was there anything that you felt was uh, that maybe you liked the first time around, but that you found to be especially terrible on that second? This yeah, I mean, I, I also already called out that Alien Infirm song because I really I thought that was a highlight when it, when this album was new. And now I think it's one of the worst songs on this album. I guess the other thing that bears mentioning that we need to talk about if we're going to talk about this is the very strange collaboration between Macy Gray and Tom Morello. Yeah, I just saw that because I've never heard this record and I probably oh, should okay. have listened to it before we went into it. But uh, no, you shouldn't have. <laughs> and then yeah, that was and then I looked at the track list and I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll let him do all the talking. I think what happened was that the album came together differently from the movie, right? And so there's a scene in the movie where there's a festival going on that's sponsored by Oscorp. In the context of that festival, Macy Gray plays herself and she's performing in the background of this scene. So I think they came to the music director of the album, 
This is all speculation on my part, by the way. Uh, I think they came to the musical director of this album and said, well, we got to put this Macy Gray song on the album because she's in the movie. The musical director was probably like, what? How am I going to do that? <laughs> this is this is like Slipknot and The Strokes and Alien Ant Farm and Nickelback. Wait, how am I going to? OK, you know what? We're going to take this Macy Gray song and we're going to stick Tom Morello on it and remix the hell out of it. And that's how it's going to fit on here. And it it's something. <laughs> it is the most musically interesting moment on this album by far. I don't know if I would ever want to listen to that again. I think I'd rather just put on a Macy Gray album. That's the thing. Macy Gray is one of those figures who I know has written and recorded a lot of really good music. And I'm always telling myself, you got to listen to more Macy Gray. I want to be, I want to get into her more for years. I still haven't actually dug that deep into her discography. I feel like I've just given myself a challenge and a slash homework assignment here. You know, I'd rather just hear her in context rather than stick her on an alt rock album and have Tom Morello remix the song. Right. Yeah. That does sound like, you know, like you mentioned that it's interesting and something that's interesting musically isn't always good. Right. Right. It's the most ambitious thing on this album. Okay. Including the two Danny Elfman score selections that were put on here. <laughs> so it's, it's, this seems like a very odd collection. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it works listening to it, but I, I didn't listen to it. So I don't know. I mean, the soundtrack hangs together well until the last few tracks. Um, you know, everything I just mentioned, the Macy Gray song, uh, and then the two Danny Elfman songs are... And the Aerosmith, uh, the and the Aerosmith, Aerosmith cover. cover. Those are all in the last five tracks. So, you know, before that, it's just a solid, it's, it's basically now that's what I call new metal. Like that's basically what this is. <laughs> yeah. And looking back, it's like, I, I vaguely remember being this person, but it's not for me anymore. Mm. So that's some of the things going back and listening to high school stuff. You have to, you, you, you do so much, you know, a lot of people hopefully do so much more exploring and, you know, you, you have the, those high school, you know, high school is kind of set in stone and sometimes, you know, college is set in stone and then yeah, it's, it's where you go from there. So thanks for sharing uh, with that. Now, as I of mentioned course. at the, uh, at the intro, you have a new album. Now I'm setting to this episode should come out on Thanksgiving day. And the day after that on black Friday, you have a new record coming out. Uh, the joke I've been telling everybody is, uh, you know, my album comes out on black Friday. It makes a great gift mm -hmm. for me. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, love to wake up on black Friday and see several people have bought my album. It'll be on the streaming platforms as well. So you know, if you're cheap or don't want to, or or, uh, or jobless, as many people are, don't worry about that. It'll be available uh, wherever you go for your music. Okay. You recently won a songwriting contest as well this year, which that's is right. A, yeah. A um, German it's, it has a German name, so I'm going to let you say it because I've only seen it in print. And I've never heard it. So, what's the what was the name of the contest? Uh, on our podcast, Harrison and I have had arguments about well, not arguments, but made a really running bit about the pronunciation of this. I've always said nur ein, nur ein, which is German for only one. Mm -hmm. So like it starts with 25 competitors and then one by one, the judges eliminate everybody until there is nur ein. Now, my brother, who is almost fluent in German, will tell me I'm, I'm mispronouncing the nur part, but I honestly don't hear the difference between yeah. the way he says it and the way I say it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's that's... not here now. So. Sure. So who cares? But <laughs> yeah, it was um, it originated out of this songwriting community that I'm a part of called Song Fight. One of the guys once 15 years ago had this idea of like, what if we did a Song Fight Survivor, which, you know, again, 15 years ago. So Survivor was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea was that they'd get a group of contestants and then they'd have a panel of judges 
And so everybody's submitting their songs. The judges choose for each round, they choose a title. So everybody's songs are going to have the same titles and they have a challenge like some kind of music theory thing that you have to do during the song for it to qualify. And then they'll rank them all sequentially and the bottom three or four in each round get eliminated. The first one was seven rounds. And then for every year after that, they've added a round zero qualifier round. This year was Nurein 15. It was the largest qualifying round they've ever had. There were 41 entries in round one. There's never been more than 25 before. So I think what it was, was a lot of people who were cooped up in quarantine. Yeah. (laughs) who, uh, you know, had nothing but spare time on their hands and need, and a lot of feelings they needed to vent. So it was a very crowded field. I've participated in years past and, and uh, usually conk out around round three or four. But this time, I, I don't know, man, something clicked, something something was going my way. I kind of felt like I leveled up. And when the, when competition started getting seriously, I started reading more resources about things like mixing techniques and things like that so I could get a better sound. And you know, when the dust settled, I I was Nurein. I was the last one standing. Uh, so there were eight eight rounds of this, uh, including that qualifying round. And of those eight songs that I did, six of them ended up on the new album, which is called Stages. Okay. Uh, so it's six of those, uh, a couple of others uh, from the song fight community, and then just some other ones that I wrote independently of anything. Uh, I have some guests on the album. Uh, my friend Phil Graham does a guitar solo on one. Uh, my friend Mo Oyang, who also was a guest on our podcast, performed guitar on another song. Uh, my friend Jimmy Moreland, who goes by the name Sober from Mandolin on one track. Uh, and Holly Furlone uh, does guest vocals on one song as well. So, uh, you know, it's a community effort in a lot of ways, but also, uh, you know, it's a huge accomplishment as far as I'm concerned. I just finished it, uh, or at least my side of it, uh, just a few days ago. I handed it off to the mastering engineer who's working with me. It'll be hot off the presses when it uh, <laughs> when I drop it. Excellent. So, yeah. So, like I said, this is uh, our episode should be dropping on Thanksgiving. Yours is going to be, uh, your album is going to be released the very next day. The name of it is, once again, Stages? That's correct. Stages. Uh, how many tracks do we have on this one? 13 songs on the album. 13 songs. Okay. And uh, if I understand, if I remember correctly, Pistols at Dawn will be on it. That's right. Pistols with Dawn, which I already released as a lead single. So you can go check that one out right now. And also uh, there's, I made another single called Good Trouble, which felt very appropriate. I wanted to get that single out there before the election. (laughs) Even though the election didn't turn out as disastrously as I had feared, I still think that message is very relevant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So if I understand correctly, this is the first time that you've decided to record under your own name. So you're no longer using a stage name. Anybody has ever followed you under, if I remember correctly, John Eric, uh, yes. you are now recording under your name, John Porabil. That's right. Uh, so that's where people should go look for you. How would you describe the sound of this record? It is varied. That's for sure. It's, a, it's an eclectic record. One thing that I really kind of felt like I have developed the ability to do that I didn't have the last couple of times I tried recording was just the ability to inhabit other genres. So I was sort of experimenting with different musical modes. There are a couple of piano ballads, but there's also, you know, A Good Trouble is a soul song. I would say uh, there's a song called The Handbook that's kind of a folk punk number. There's um, Pistols at Dawn is like like an optimistic pop song, like like what you would get in the last couple of train records, that kind of thing. Homestretch is a synth pop workout triumphant song yeah i mean it's got and and there are a couple of like country songs in there too so there's like so i have a song called henrietta's eyes that's sort of a 
country folk thing. And then by the second half of the song, it sort of morphs into more of a Southern rock country vibe. And then there's uh, another song in there called, um, called Rear Window, which is I've been I was picturing as like a straight up classic country like Johnny Cash or Willie Nelson kind of weeper. And so when you put an album together that is that varied, how do you make it sound like an album? Is there a through line? Is there something that that makes them all hang together? Or do you just trust that the audience is going to be willing to go for a ride? It uh, it really varies. You know, I mean, I I can tell you what, what I was thinking for this album, but it's not going to be the same as like other albums that span a lot of genres. Like, for instance, um, my brother and I have talked about uh, Welcome Interstate Managers by Fountains of Wayne. That's another album that does a lot of genre hopping. And that holds together for different reasons, I think, from like mine, I think it's thematically is how it holds together because I'm really, uh, I think the themes on this album are really intertwined with the unique stress of living in the year 2020. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of like, a lot of these songs are just very immediately informed by anxiety and existential dread. There's a song early on in the album called This Is Fine, which is just about insisting things are fine in spite of everything in the world crumbling. Uh, the first line of that song is today i almost ran my car off the road on purpose this is fine uh, <laughs> i think it's those themes and the, and the stress of or, or the i think it's those themes and my conveyance of that stress and anxiety that makes these things hold together and the fact that of course it's it's my voice throughout the album uh, you know no matter how much i try to branch out it's always still me under there so mm -hmm. like you can always try to do new things, but it's, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think between those two things, I think it is enough to hold on. But I think also, yeah, there's going to be an element of you got to be you got to be willing to go for the go for a ride, because this is an album that's going to take you from that acoustic country ballad straight into a synth pop song and you just hold on to your hats. All right. So where can uh, where can people find this to, if they want to purchase this? Are you doing anything like through, through Bandcamp? Yeah, paid distribution is going to be through Bandcamp. So if you would like to pay for this album, bless your heart. I really appreciate it. Go to johnporabill.bandcamp.com or go to just johnporabill.com. I have both of those. It's J-O-N-P-O-R-O-B-I-L.com or .bandcamp.com. And I'll have the album for sale there. You'll also be able to see my older albums there. You know, even though they're under the old moniker, they'll still be on my Bandcamp page. Again, if you're not in a position to pay for music right now, then the other way would just be to go to Spotify and YouTube Music or Amazon Music. It'll be in all those places. Okay. So uh, if uh, they want to listen to it, they can, they can find you under that name anywhere they go. But if they want to buy it, then Bandcamp is the way to go. And I am sure because that'll be released on a Friday and Bandcamp yeah. has been doing their Bandcamp Fridays. And so that means yeah, I all... hope there's one of those real soon. <laughs> <laughs> I would assume that they're going to do that for they do it for Black Friday or soon after. I'm not planning my release schedule around that, but it'll, it'll be nice if they do. Uh, keep me in your thoughts uh, if uh, if you hear one of those announcements. All right. Terrific. That's it for this episode. So John, thank you very much for uh, for joining and, and sharing one of uh, one of your old high school favorites that. Yeah. Maybe didn't quite hold up. And <laughs> Well, thanks uh, for having me, Derek. I really appreciate being on here. And we'll talk to you sometime soon. You and me both. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.